0: No, no children today. Uh, you may notice we're usually, uh, my family makes up most of the children that come up here, but uh, they're camping with their other grandparents this weekend, so uh, uh, we didn't forget them. Uh, they're safe, and uh, we'll see them this afternoon. But uh, uh, it's great to see everybody this morning. Uh, I want to make uh, one thing clear. Uh, I'm not the new senior pastor. Um, uh, you'll have to come back next week uh, to, to welcome him. And uh, to hear him speak. So if you like what you hear today from me, come back. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and you'll hear a, a probably even better message. And if you don't like what you hear today, come back and you'll get a better message. So um, today, uh, you know, the, the title of my sermon, I titled it Hurry Up and Wait, which, um, which we'll discuss, I think, really kind of characterizes the Christian life uh, in, some, in some aspects Uh, We'll be talking about, you know, God's timing, how uh, he makes promises and he fulfills them in his time, and his time, of course, is always best. Um, I was reminded of the grace in God's timing uh, just last weekend, uh, Saturday night, I sat at home and watched as uh, my Mississippi State Bulldogs just unraveled in the second half against your LSU Tigers, and, you know, I thought... Man, God knew what he was doing. I'm sure I'm glad I wasn't scheduled to preach last week because uh, that would have been tough to recover from so quickly. And um, I've been grateful for this week to, to calm down and cool down and get my head uh, about me. But uh, even more, I was grateful for the wonderful sermon Larry Bowser gave last week, which was certainly the message that we needed. Uh, so last month uh, during the communion service, um, I spoke about how we as Christians today, we can look back on the Passover through Scripture and see it from its inception in the Hebrew deliverance from Egypt all the way to its completion in the sacrifice of Christ, uh, God's promise fulfilled in His time. In their deliverance from Egypt, God instituted the annual Passover meal for the Israelites to look back on their liberation from bondage and slavery, and as Scripture tells us, the Passover was also forward-looking, pointing to Christ. Christ fulfilled the Passover in His death as the deliverer and redeemer from sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the last Passover meal, uh, on the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with His disciples, Uh, gave new meaning to the bread and the wine. They were to be symbols of His body that was broken for us and His blood that was shed on our behalf. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, a past event, until He comes, a future event. So like the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper looks back to a fulfilled promise in Jesus' death and resurrection and looks forward to His return, a promise that's not yet fulfilled. Today we'll be looking in Hebrews chapter 11 at an example of a life that was lived in anticipation of a promise that was not yet fulfilled. Uh, If you haven't already turned there in your Bible, you can go ahead and do so. If you're familiar with Scripture, uh, Hebrews 11 is likely a familiar reference to you. I remember as a young boy, I think in uh, fourth through sixth grade, grades, um, participating in Bible drill at church. Um, Bible drill, we had to memorize the books of the Bible, had to be able to turn to them uh, quickly when, when called upon, we had to memorize certain key verses and be able to recite them on demand. And additionally, we had to memorize Scripture reference and uh, the themes of certain what we call key passages, uh, like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 or the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Hebrews 11 was one of those key passages we had to know and we called it the faith chapter. Why is it called that? In the previous chapter, chapter 10, the author encourages his readers to walk in faith and exercise patience and endurance in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. In chapter 11, the author tells us of the faith of several Old Testament saints as examples to imitate. He does so chronologically, starting with Abel. And then in the beginning of chapter 12, the author points to Jesus. He writes, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses that surrounding us, the Old Testament saints in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's quickly take a look at the first three verses of Hebrews 11 before we get into the rest of our text today. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval by faith. We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible." Verse 3 is brilliantly placed by the author to help his readers understand the faith described in verse 1. Before citing the specific Old Testament examples, the author starts at the very beginning at creation itself. And when the author says, we understand, we conclude ourselves in this as well. By faith, we believe that the world was created by God at His word, which means that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, but invisible. Here, the author establishes the power of God's word. God uttered and the world was created. That which is seen came into being by that which is not seen. So God's promises of things not yet seen, promises that have not been fulfilled will also come to fruition at the power of his word and in his time. The power of God's word and his faithfulness to his word helps us to have the faith described in verse 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Starting in verse 4, the author begins listing examples of the Old Testament saints and giving descriptions of their faith and action, beginning with Abel and then Enoch and then Noah. Then in verse 8, the author shifts his focus to Abraham and his family, which is where we'll be spending our time this morning. How appropriate that Abraham is included in this chapter. After God promises Abraham a son and descendants as numerous as the stars, Genesis 15-6 famously records that Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Paul references this verse in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 to demonstrate that righteousness comes by faith, and Abraham is the father of faith to all, that Jewish and Gentile believers are the spiritual seed of Abraham. This is also not the author's first reference to Abraham's faith, which occurs in Hebrews chapter 6. Our scripture reading today was was verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. I'll read those again, and then I'll continue on into verse 13, where the author will bring Abraham into the discussion starting in verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. These verses read like a teaser to chapter 11. The verses in chapter 6 focus primarily on the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to provide Abraham a son and Isaac, which verses 11 and 12 of chapter 11 touch on. Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac would eventually lead to, as verse 12 states, descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. For time's sake, we're going to skip over those two verses today in chapter 11 as the focus of the surrounding verses are on another promise God made to Abraham regarding the land he would give to his descendants, which is a promise that Abraham did not see fulfilled in his lifetime. He died before the promise was fulfilled. Please follow along as I begin reading from Hebrews 11. We'll start in verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. When he was, um, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham demonstrated faith by obeying God when he called him to leave his home. God did not tell Abraham where he was going. He said, go to the land, which I will show you. But Abraham still obeyed, trusting in God's promise. After God brought him to the promised land, Abraham further demonstrated his faith by living as a stranger in the land, traveling around in tents and not possessing any of the land. I can imagine Abraham and his family probably having some rough days on their journey to and within the promised land. As they lived in tents as strangers and pilgrims in a foreign land, Possibly causing doubts to occasionally come into Abraham's mind. I think that happens to all of us at different times, to varying degrees, but especially during the difficult times. I remember when Hurricane Ida hit last year. Uh, Mary Catherine and I have been in Louisiana for a while, but this was the first storm that really, you know, significantly impacted us. And I remember questioning a lot of things the night that storm hit. I remember the power went out. I sat under my covered patio trying to start the generator, which wasn't working, while the storm, like I had never seen before, just raged around me. I remember thinking, what am I doing here? Like (laughs) Something has gone wrong, that I am in this situation. Uh, Even the thought of, why do I even live in a place where this is even possible? (laughs) Uh, But after the storm clears, I can clearly look back and see This is where God has led us. This is where he wants us to be, and we love being here, even with the occasional hurricane threat. Abraham could have easily thought, I've left my family in the comfort of home to come to a land that is unknown and foreign to me, which supposedly will be given to my descendants, yet I have no children, and my wife and I are old, well beyond childbearing years. Going back home seems like the reasonable thing to do. (laughs) But Abraham's faith did not waver. What kept Abraham going? Why was he willing to live this way? The author tells us that it's because he was looking for a city not built by human hands, not a man made city like the one he left, but one designed and built by God. More on this in the coming verses. Let's skip 11 12, go to verse 13. It says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So Abraham and his family died in faith without receiving the promises. You'll recall that Jacob, Abraham's grandson, moved his family to Egypt during a famine where his son Joseph, after his brothers had sold him into slavery, had ascended to send a chief steward to the pharaoh. Jacob would eventually die in Egypt and the Israelites would become enslaved by the Egyptians. Israel never possessed any of the promised land until God led them out of slavery in Egypt under Moses, and then under Joshua's leadership, the Lord gave Israel the land initially promised to Abraham. However, the complete fulfillment of this promise has yet to occur, as history tells us that Israel has never fully occupied all the land that God promised to Abraham. So this is a promise that even today is yet to be fulfilled. It says they died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, refers to their face, faith, their assurance of things hoped for, their conviction of things not seen, that God would do what he said he would do. And they confess that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The author states that those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. This country is not the one they came from. Otherwise, they would have returned and had they had opportunity to do so. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one, a place better than the one they came from and a place better than the place of their sojourning. They were not merely pilgrims and strangers in the Promised Land, but on the earth itself. The true home they desired was a heavenly one. Their faith extended beyond the grave, beyond this life. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them, Not ashamed is a litotes, that's your word for the day, L-I-T-O-T-E-S, which is a literary device where a negative of something is stated to emphasize the positive. For example, if I say Einstein was no dummy, I'm actually emphasizing just how smart he is. The author of Hebrews does this several times in his letter. So the author is not saying God is merely not ashamed, but that truly he is well pleased to be called their God. You may recall that when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he introduced himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Let's look at the final part of verse 16 as we move into application. For he has prepared a city for them. God is pleased to be called their God and indeed does have a heavenly country, a heavenly city prepared for them the same one that He has prepared for us. In John 14, Jesus gave His disciples a promise that applies to all believers. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship, even now while we are on earth, is in heaven, the place where Jesus is, the place where he has gone to prepare for us to join him. In Revelation 21, John recorded that he saw a city in the vision of the things which will take place, or future events. John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This New Jerusalem is a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, the place He has prepared for us. That is our destination, that is our home, our inheritance. This is not just another city. Its beauty and magnificence astounded John as he attempted to describe and put in writing what he saw. Here, he says, there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the city has no need of the sun Of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it." Like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, Christians are likewise strangers and exiles on the earth, pilgrims passing through looking forward to a heavenly country. The return that Jesus talked about in John 14, the same one that Paul talks about when in his instruction on the Lord's Supper that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, his return is imminent. The exact date is unknown, but it can happen at any moment. I remember when Mary Catherine was, was pregnant with our, our third child, Sterling, uh, a few years ago. And uh, I remember, I think it was a men's breakfast. Um, I was having a conversation with Steve Hudson, and he was asking you know, how far along she was, and we were pretty close to the due date at that point. And he said, oh, it's It's imminent and he was exactly right Sterling could have come at any moment I think that's a useful comparison for the Christian life as we all know doctors cannot point to an exact time that a baby will be born in fact none of our children were born on the due date but we know that a woman generally reaches a point in her pregnancy or childbirth is truly imminent right maybe for a few weeks or a month um, where baby can come at any moment During this window of time for the expecting parents, there's a balance between patience and urgency. You know, life still goes on. The world keeps turning. For our situation, I I couldn't just stay home from work and and wait for the baby to come. Um, For every pregnancy after our first, we still had other children that had to be cared for. So Mary Catherine and I had to continue our daily routines during this time. We had to continue to be faithful to the responsibilities that we already had. But at the same time, we had to be prepared for that baby to come at any moment. The house needed to stay clean. We needed bags packed for the hospital. Car seat had to be in the car. We had to line up babysitters for our children while we were in the hospital. The nursery needed to be set up and and ready to go. I remember I always made sure my phone was never on silent unless I was with Mary Catherine, um, and so on. The imminence of the childbirth had a tremendous influence on the way we lived, the way we went about our daily business. We lived in a way that while we were carrying out our daily tasks and responsibilities, we'd be prepared and ready for the baby to come at any moment. When Jesus told the disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them and would return for them, Do you think Jesus expected the disciples to simply sit and wait? No, that was the last thing He intended. He left them behind for a reason. He had work for them to do. Praying to the Father in John 17, Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. God has work for us to do also. F.F. Bruce put it this way, that as we look to Jesus' return, this does not mean that we become too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. Rather, we remain faithful and diligent in the work God has for us, armed with faith, the assurance and conviction of Jesus' promise that where I am, there you may be also, to be fulfilled in his time, whether that happens because he returns during our time on earth or we die in faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And going about God's work isn't always convenient or comfortable or easy. That's one of the reasons Hebrews 11 was written, to encourage the readers by demonstrating the patient and enduring faith of the Old Testament saints. The rest of the disciples' lives certainly wasn't easy as they faced tremendous persecution, even death. And consider Abraham. God called him to leave his home, live in tents as a pilgrim in a foreign land. But again, what motivated Abraham? The author tells us that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, and he desired a better country that is a heavenly one. People, Christians included, they often spend a lot of time, effort, and resources trying to make their own idea of heaven a reality in this life here and now on the earth. The truth is that man does not know what heaven is like. No one living today has been there. And we are not presently even capable of fathoming the real heaven, being in the presence of God and absent from the presence of sin. Any idea of heaven that we can come up with on earth is inferior to the real thing. Abraham recognized that living in uncomfortable obedience is better than living in comfortable disobedience, for his reward lay beyond the grave, beyond this life. And the closest thing to heaven on earth is walking in relationship with the God of heaven. Like expecting parents anticipating the birth of a child, we eagerly anticipate the return of our Savior and the joy awaiting us. Like expecting parents preparing to welcome the child into this world, we urgently prepare to meet our Maker, whether by His return or by death. Like expecting parents who as they wait for the baby to come, they remain faithful to their other responsibilities We remain diligent and faithful in our obedience to God and the work he has for us. And finally, like parents who patiently wait for the baby to come when the time is right, we patiently wait and trust God to fulfill his promises in his time. Additionally, this is really another sermon in itself, we demonstrate our love for God by obeying his commandments. And God promises rewards in heaven for our faithfulness and work here on earth. What we do here on earth in this life matters. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Going back to Revelation chapter 21 in the verse before the one we just read where John saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven John recorded that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This earth and its treasures are temporary. They will not last. In John chapter 16, shortly after the promise he made to the disciples in John 14, and hours away from his crucifixion, Jesus told the disciples about the coming crucifixion and the resurrection, the bad news that would turn into good news. I taught on these verses earlier this year in adult Sunday school, and we looked at how, although these verses are specific to the disciples in the period of time between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we can consider how Jesus' words might apply to us today. I'll read these verses and picture Jesus speaking them to you here and now. In John 16, starting in verse 16, he says, A little while, and you will no longer see me. He was about to be crucified. The disciples would no longer see him. And again a little while, and you will see me. He would be resurrected on the third day and the disciples would see him again. In verse 20 he starts, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. The disciples would experience intense grief like labor pains, but like labor pains, the pain would be but a little while, and completely overshadowed by the joy at the end of the pain, like a mother's joy at the birth of her baby. The grief that the believers face in this life includes grappling with our sin nature and dealing with the ramifications of living in a fallen world, including sometimes persecution. Let's compare the life we live on earth where we do not see Jesus with the life after death where we will see Jesus. This life has no guarantees and is but a little while filled with grief and pain, but that's compared to an assurance of eternity, of joy, peace, and rest in His presence. Paul sums it up nicely in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, they will pass away, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, Jesus is our example, who for the joy set before him, he saw the joy at the end of the cross, endured the cross. So now what? Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Last time I preached, I closed with an illustration that I had heard from Pastor Nick several years ago that really stuck with me, and I've got another one for you today, uh, on faith specifically. Two bridges are lying side by side. One of the bridges is made of wood and is 150 years old. The boards on this bridge are rotten. In fact, some of the boards are even missing. The bridge next to this old bridge is, is brand new. It's made of high-grade steel and concrete, but at this point, no one has had a chance to use it. Two men walk up to the bridges. One of them says, I think I will try this new bridge. I know no one has walked on this bridge yet. I know it's untested, but it looks good enough to me. So with very little faith and with a lot of fear and anxiety, the man takes a light step on the bridge, and then another light step, and then eventually he crosses the bridge safely. The other man walks up to the two bridges and says, this wooden bridge has been here for a long time. My family has used this bridge for years. My dad walked on this bridge. My grandfather walked on this bridge. Even my great-grandfather walked on this bridge. So very confidently, this man proceeds to walk across the bridge, but it gives way, and the man falls to his death. The difference in the two men that mattered was not the amount of faith they had but only the object of their faith. The faith of the man who walked on the new solid bridge was actually small, but the object of his faith was a very strong bridge. In contrast to that, the other man actually had a lot of faith, but his faith was in a weak object, an old worn out bridge, and his strong faith did not save him. So what's the point? When it comes to getting to heaven, the object of our faith has to be in Jesus Christ. It does not matter if we have strong faith in Christ's ability to save us or weak faith in Christ's ability to save us. We will be saved and have eternal life if Christ is the object of our faith. On the other hand, a person may have very strong faith in their good works, being baptized, church membership, etc., But faith in any of these things will not get him to heaven because he has faith in the wrong object. It's not the amount of our faith we have that saves us is the object of our faith that saves us and Jesus Christ has to be the object of our faith to be saved if you haven't done so I invite you to put your faith in Christ this morning to trust in his sacrifice for your sins to be forgiven and then you too can look forward to the heavenly joys that we've talked about this morning let's pray Father we're so grateful for the the promises you've given us Uh, we're grateful that um, we can trust in you that you are indeed are faithful to keep your promises and that uh, you fulfill them in your own time and that's the best time. We pray that we would live with the assurance and conviction um, of, of your faithfulness to your promises, Lord, that we will be uh, urgent and swift to obey uh, but also at the same time remain patient and diligent as we wait for you uh, to do your work in your time. I pray that we would be uh, always conscious of the work you have us to do here. And uh, as as we talked about this morning, that we would not become too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use, uh, but that we would be good and faithful stu- servants and stewards of what you've given us here on this earth. God, we thank you for everything that's going on here at Mandeville Bible Church. Um, we anticipate... the. Uh, Chris starting next week, and we just pray for him and his family as we welcome them. And, of course, we pray for Eric and Melissa as as they as they move on to something new. And uh, we just thank you for your hand on uh, on our church and all things. We pray that you'd be with each one of us here this morning and going into this week. And may we live in a way that honors and pleases you. And all we do is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.